0: This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at altizen.com, A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Pascal Finette on the Singularity University Labs and how startups with exponential technologies focusing on a grand challenge can work with them. We also discuss his new book, The Heretic, and his thoughts on the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Hi, Pascal. Hey, fantastic to be here with you. Yes, I'm so glad to have this opportunity to talk to you, but over a 15-hour time difference. How are things going? Things are really, really great. We just had a beautiful sunset here in, at the moment, rainy Silicon Valley. And I'm talking to Pascal Finette, Vice President, Singularity University Labs, Entrepreneur Chair and Global Evangelist at Singularity University. And I have to full disclosure, I was part of the Global Solutions Program in 2016. In fact, Pascal was a very good lecturer on the points of starting up companies and I think a lot of my classmates are still following on with your covering launchpad program. So it's good to have you here. So I wanted to start off with asking you, how do you get started in your career? So I uh, grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. My dad
1: was an entrepreneur himself. I think I literally got this like inhaled in my body from like the very f- first day. And then uh, really my, my starting point for my career was when I was at college, the, dot, the first dot com boom happened. And uh, it was a little bit of like right place, right time. I was very interested in technology since an early age. I was playing with computers for like 10 years when the dot-com boom happened. So out of college, out of the dorm room in my college, I started my first company. Raised two and a half million US dollars and we're off to the races. And that's really how I got started. And then subsequently you moved to Silicon Valley, right? With a couple of stations in between, but that's correct,
0: yes. So You want to talk a little bit about the middle part of the story because... When you talk about it during the lectures, it was very interesting to hear about it. Yeah,
1: the middle part of the story is it's a long, windy road. And I think that one thing I just want to make sure your listeners understand is that most of my decisions I took during my life really didn't make all that much sense while I was taking the decision. And then, you know, uh, they make sense in, in retrospect. So if I tell you the story in retrospect, it actually makes sense. But mostly I, I operate on on hunches and do the stuff I I, I want to do. So the, the very short version of the middle one is started my first company out of college, sold that company towards the end of the dot-com boom, joined eBay and Europe in the very early days, did business development for eBay, I had a fantastic time there, learned a lot, left eBay, did merge and acquisition for a U.S. software company, so kind of got my grounding in that area as well. Left that organization, started a consulting business, sold the consulting business, started a venture firm. That venture firm brought me to London. So I was operating out of Berlin, Germany. The venture firm brought me to London, was at Lon- in London, get to know the people from Mozilla, the maker of the Firefox web browser. They asked me if I would come to the US and run innovation there. So I decided that this was too good an opportunity to pass on. So ended up in Silicon Valley about eight years ago, running innovation for Mozilla. Did this for a little while, went to google.org, and then finally came to Singularity University. And in between, I did... Lots of little things left and right. So it's a, it's a really long, weird, convoluted story. And it's a very windy road, which I think is a pretty typical road for most entrepreneurial folks. And it
0: was a lot of fun. With this long, winding road, what are the interesting lessons you can share with my audience in terms of their career So I think a couple of things
1: I have learned. The first is, as I mentioned earlier, I operate very much on this principle of I do this stuff, which I find personally interesting. And I think this has a lot to do with you have to understand who you are and what you're good at and what you're not good at. So one of the things I learned very quickly when I ran my own company is that I love and I'm probably good at starting things. So the early stages of a company, of a project, of an organization. I'm not really good at managing them. So once they become a little bit more mature and stabilized and need actual management, that's not typically the stages where I'm good at. So I I think really the essence is figure out like who you are, what drives you, what you value, what makes you happy, where you're good at, and then focus on getting better at those instead of trying to become some weird cliche version of what you think you should be and really my career speaks to that so I've never stayed at a company for much longer than like three years because I typically come to this point where my learning curve flattens out I think I'm I'm not stretching myself anymore enough so I tend to leave.
0: Coming back to today's main topic is basically we are going to talk about Singularity University Labs but I think for my audience it's also good to introduce singularity university which recently went through a rebranding exercise so i probably have to ask you this question what is the mission of su so the mission hasn't changed so singularity university is a really
1: unique interesting place as you know where we inspire educate and empower leaders to apply exponential technologies so technologies which are moving on an exponentially accelerating rate such as you know computer technologies artificial intelligence robotics synthetic biology with a goal to tackle humanity's grand challenges. So for us, the notion is leverage the cutting edge of technology to solve some of the world's biggest problems. Our role in this ecosystem is mostly around inspiring and education. So I would say most of our work is on the educational side. And then we give you tools and frameworks
0: and have programs which empower you to take action. So how does SU empower the global community to create the abundant future. I mean, that came from the concept of abundance by Peter Demendes, one of the co-founders of Singularity University and also the founder of XPRIZE.
1: So a couple of ways. We have a, a set of programs and they're geared to anyone from very new, a very new program for us high schoolers to students, young entrepreneurs, people like yourself with our global solutions program in the summer to executives in larger corporations through our executive programs. And what we do is we provide these people both insights into how does technology shape the world, as well as we provide them a a perspective on the world, which is particularly driven by this idea that, as you mentioned, we can create an abundant future, as opposed to a, a future based on scarcity, which is our current, mostly our current operating model, leveraging these technologies. So really, we're providing a breadth of programs to a pretty broad set of constituencies in the world. And we're currently at the stage of really figuring out how can we take this message? I mean, how can we take this content and make it available to even more people? And efforts here are we run a startup acceleration program, not unlike Y Combinator or Techstars, but really focused on these particular companies we want to see exist in the world, namely exponentially uh, accelerating technologies and global impact. And we run on the corporate side, we run programs helping large corporations make sense of
0: the change they and we
1: are seeing in the world.
0: Can you briefly talk a little bit more about your current role and coverage in the Singularity University? Mm -hmm. So I oversee
1: basically all our entrepreneurial programs. So we have a set of programs we built over the last two and a half years to support entrepreneurs who use technology to solve the most intractable problems in the world. Those programs start out with the program you participated in, which is the Global Solutions Program, which is a 10 week program in the summer where we teach and inspire and challenge our students to come up with solutions to the biggest problems they're passionate about in the world. We have an incubation program which follows the summer program. So we take the best most promising teams out of the summer program and put them into an incubation program really helping them build their companies we have a startup acceleration program which is another eight to ten week program we run twice a year we have a venture fund and we have a growth program so for companies which are later stage so typically like your series a funded company whom we are providing with resources such as mentorship as well as contacts to fortune 500s all around the world to tackle again tackle these big 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 problems how does su lab's fit with
0: the Singularity
1: University's ecosystem? So if you think about, as what I mentioned earlier, us, namely Singularity University, being primarily an educational institution, what happens is that participants who go through our programs very often leave the program with this, okay, so now what? How do I make sense? Not only make sense, but how do I put this to action? And, And we founded SU Labs on the premise of Let us build programs to support these people with action. And we're doing this in basically three areas at the moment, which is corporates. So we work with large corporations, support them on their innovation journey. We support what we call development organizations. So these are the UNICEFs and the Ashokas of this world, so NGOs. And then lastly, the startup side, which we talked about a little bit already.
0: How does SU Labs actually select the founders to be part of their program? I know one of the ways is actually through the Global Solutions program where we went through the 10 weeks and then you decided that these 30 people would go on to the launch pad and to start the companies. But are there any other ways of doing that too? Yeah, so you can apply. We have an open
1: application process for the acceleration program and we're currently figuring out how we do the same for the incubation program. And what we're really looking for in our founders and the companies are multiple dimensions around the quality of the founder and the idea. And that's not unlike any other acceleration program. So you look at, do you think that the founder has what it takes to actually build the company? Does the product and the company actually make sense? Where are they on their journey? And then I think the piece which is very unique for us is we look at two more criteria, the one being is your business built on leveraging a an exponentially accelerating technology? For example, do you use robotics in elderly care? Do you use synthetic biology in a healthcare startup? So that's kind of our niche. And then the second one is, are you tackling a really big, hairy problem? So we're not interested in, and there's nothing against this, but we are particularly not interested in the next photo social sharing app. We're really fascinated by how do you solve the water problem, or how do you solve the challenge? There's you know nearly 800 million people who can't read or write, or how do you tackle large disease outbreaks? So really interested in applying these technologies to solve
0: big problems. Specifically, you talk about the programs that ASU labs run for the startups. I want to drill down a little bit. What kind mm-hmm. of training do you give to these? founders and startups, like for example, the launchpad, for example, your accelerator programs, is it very similar to most of these accelerator programs out there? Or do you have a different way of approach?
1: I think so similar to the selection criteria we just talked about, I think we also have a a two pronged strategy. The one is, yes, we give you the core business skills, which you would also learn into in a quote unquote, normal accelerator. So, Anything from how do you get to product market fit? What are the best practices to build your product? How do you market your product? How do you price it? How do you get to customer? How do you make sure that product resonates with your customer? How do you do market research, etc.? All this is something you would get in every better acceleration program. The part which I think is very unique for us, and we put a lot of emphasis on, is the companies which come to us have typically very large ambitions, right? They want to tackle these really big problems in the world. Some people call this the moonshot ideas. The challenge with those is as ambitious as they are and as much as they work as a North Star it's sometimes really hard to break them down into, okay, so what do you do actually about this, right? Like if you come to me and say, like, I want to tackle the 757 million people who can't read or write, that's an amazing moonshot. But how do you actually go about it? And what is your first step? So we spend a lot of time helping people break down these moonshots into actually tangible first steps and then create a, a work plan based on that. So that's, I think, the core of what we provide, which is very different to your normal programs.
0: What are the key attributes for founding teams or startups that you believe are crucial to their failures or successes later? Hmm, That's a good question. I think when you look at, very generally speaking, when you look at
1: startups, why startups fail, it's typically only out of two reasons. The one is you have team issues. So the startup actually fails because the team never gets Like, never pulls it together. That happens more often than you would think. The second one is the company never gets to product market fit, meaning they're building something or they're working on something which never really resonates with the market. So they haven't fully understood the problem they're trying to solve from the customer's perspective. So it's very easy to uh, to be in your own head and like solve a problem you think is a problem, but you need to make sure that it's actually a problem. So I think those two are the vast majority of failures. Once you have both solved, most of the other issues, such as, you know, funding, for example, they become fairly easy, not to say that they're easy, but they're fairly easy to solve. If you have product market fit, it's typically, and you have a good team
0: in place, it's typically not an issue to raise the funding you might need. And then how about successes then? Is it because they have a very good team, good execution? Yeah,
1: I think the successful companies and and history teaches us that is, you have identified either willingly and, and deliberately, or sometimes just by sheer luck, you have identified a real need in the market, a real problem you're solving, and you're solving it so good that the market wants your product. And once you have that, it's all about execution, and execution comes down to the team. So I think it's exactly what you just described. It's kind of like the weakness,
0: if you flip it around, becomes the strength. I want to ask this what are the interesting startups from SU Labs? Can you share some of those? Yeah, of course. To give you a
1: couple of startups and give you a a little bit of an idea of the breadth of companies. So one of them is a company called Made in Space. They've been around for a little while now. They have created the first 3D printer, which works in microgravity, meaning that they actually have two printers now installed on the International Space Station. Currently printing replacement materials right up there in space. And this is not only a technical feat, but it's also if you think about us as a spe- species going multiplanetary, we have to do this. We have to create, you know, for example, replacement parts or something in space. So they've been doing this for a little while. They've been very, very successful Have large contracts with NASA, for example. So that's one example. Uh, and then just probably give you another example just to show you the other side of the coin. We've got a company called Miraculous, which came out of the summer program you participated in in 2013. And Miraculous is using a blood test, testing using a a methodology called microRNA testing to detect cancer, early stage cancer in your blood. And they have very promising research which indicates that they can detect multiple cancers pre-stage one using a simple blood test. And you can imagine what this means in terms of diagnostics and then also treatment, because you can treat significantly earlier
0: than with traditional diagnostics methods. How does SU labs help startups to actually reach the next stage? For example, once they have finished the accelerator or incubation program, how do you move them forward? Then? So it's really important to understand. And
1: I stress this point. Any acceleration program or incubation program can only be the start of your journey. Because imagine like you're building a company, building a company typically takes you, you know, start to finish somewhere in between five and 10 years. So you can imagine in, in this context, a program which is eight weeks or 10 weeks long is a just a drop in the ocean. It's a blimp. So really what we're doing is we use this time to set you up for success, to create the conditions for success inside of your corporation, to provide you with the knowledge you need to have. And then I think it's the most important part begins, which is ongoing support. So once you leave the program, you're not on your own and out there, but we've built a specific support infrastructure, which we call the startup network, where we continue to support you with guidance, mentors and advisors access to funding, access to industry partners, so Fortune 500s who can, who can become suppliers or contractors or purchasers of your goods and services. So it's really about like, how do you support someone in the long run, particularly given, as I mentioned earlier, the companies we have, the companies we're looking for tackling these really big
0: moonshot problems, they take a little longer to build than your average web app you set up the Singularity University Labs. Where do you see SU labs be in five years' time? I mean you have a very good team who will work for you and you always acknowledge that. Yeah,
1: it's a great that's a really great question. I think the and it's a very timely question as I've been thinking a lot about this lately and as I'm trying to set us up for for that future. For me the really interesting and most exciting part is so we've used the last two years to build a lot of infrastructure And to prove out that the stuff we had in our heads in terms of the programming, the content we wanted to develop actually works. And I think we've got a good sense of product market fit, so very much like a startup. So for us now, it's really about scaling it up. And scaling it up for me in this particular context means partnering. I think it would be foolish for us as an organization to think that we we should run, for example, acceleration programs all around the world by ourselves. I think it's much smarter to say, let's take the secret sauce. Let's take this thing we've built, partner with acceleration programs all around the world and give them the content, train them up and have them be empowered to deliver this content elements and these ideas to their participants. And so really for us, like if if you were to ask me like five years down the road, I want to see an ecosystem of interconnected Incubators, accelerators, co working spaces, funders, so venture funds and other funding sources, and mentors and advisors, as well as partners, all connected in a global ne- kind of a met- mesh network, helping each other to support entrepreneurs who are leveraging exponentially accelerating technologies, tackling humanity's grand challenges.
0: That's a very interesting. Half. I hope you reach there because I think there's a lot of interesting startups that are still coming out from the Singularity University. So I wanted to switch gears a bit to talk about two things because SU is in Silicon Valley and I enjoy my time there. And also about a book you write called The Heretic. Well, I still read it every day. It's like a book that I'll just look at a different chapter, a different lesson per day just to think about things as well so you started the first company in germany and then through winding paths you moved to silicon valley and you also shared about how difficult the life of a startup founder is in your new book the heretic can you discuss why you wrote the book yeah of course so the heretic really came out of a newsletter
1: i write which has the same title the heretic and the newsletter started way back when i was at mozilla and at mozilla i had a blog i still have a blog but this blog was syndicated to something called Planet Mozilla, which is basically a syndicated feed of all the leadership at Mozilla's personal blogs so that the press, for example, can follow, you know, what's going on inside of the Mozilla project, which is great. The challenge with that was that it prevented me from writing certain things on my blog. For example, I can't use foul language, swearing or something. I can't be controversial because, again, like the press reads this and might think that this is an official opinion for Mozilla. So out of that, I started a personal newsletter, originally started a personal newsletter. I'm just writing about the trials and tribulations of starting a company, being an entrepreneur or being entrepreneurial inside of an organization and sent this out to a couple of my friends, literally like 20 or so of them. Then they started inviting other people. And before you knew it, I had a couple hundred people on this little really personal mailing list, which then triggered for me to say, you know what, I'll, I'll open this up more to the public. So built a little bit of a website around this, gave it a proper name and put it onto proper newsletter, which is now The Heretic, which is now a, a fairly interesting, amazing international community of, of readers. And I publish basically more or less every second day. You will get something new and in, fresh inside uh, into your inbox. And they're all very short, kind of like advice and discussions about things which are relevant for entrepreneurs.
0: Which is actually so, leading you to writing this book, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So the book was basically to say, there's now nearly a 1000 of those posts. And when I crossed back in the day, when I crossed the 500 post mark, I had this idea of like, why don't I take top 100 posts of these one of these 500 posts, and edit them into a book, and then turn this book basically a little bit into a coffee table book. So the idea is to do exactly what you described, not read it cover to cover, but pick up the book every once in a while, thumb through it, pick a page, read that page and either get an insight, get an interesting inquiry, get a little piece of motivational advice, something which kind of sparks you in your on your entrepreneurial journey. So that was the original idea. Then I met my co-author, Peter Arcuni. The two of us got together. We edited, we selected and edited the post, put it into a book, put it out there. And now I guess I'm an author. So how is the book structured then? The book is structured basically in the way that more or less every page is a little Self encapsulated dory, again like a nugget of insight, and then each of those is tagged, so you'll see if that nugget is inspirational or if it's a inquiry or if it's practical advice or if it's a rant. And really, the idea is, as I mentioned earlier, is like pick up the book, thumb through it, pick a random page, read that one page, close the book, go on with your day. Repeat it the next day. That's at least how I. How I envisioned it, I know that a bunch of people read it actually like cover to cover and find that interesting, but the
0: original setup of the book is as described before, so I must be very lucky because i was, I'm actually doing exactly what you wanted for your audience perfect. to do just That's read it, perfect, read a portion of the book, and another day I'll look at something that interests me and then reflect upon it so which comes to one part that I like about it is some of the lessons you shared about the book because I want to get some of your favorite lessons, but before that, two of my favorite from your book was 10x, not 10%. And the -hmm. other one is the competitive advantage of giving a damn, which I think is very important for startup founders to just roll up their sleeves and just do the job. So Mm -hmm. what are your favorite lessons that you write about that you want to share with people when they read your book?
1: That's a really good question. I think you actually picked two of my favorites as well. So I think those two are super relevant and super important. I think ultimately, and you'll see this, ruminating through a couple of my lessons and posts, I think it really comes down, for me, really comes down to know who you are, know what you want, know what's important to you, understand your customer, understand their problems, be humble. So don't think that you actually know your customer or their problems before you have really spent a lot of time working with them. And even then, I would always encourage you to be, stay humble and, and, and stay in, an, in a beginner's mindset, in an open mindset, understanding what the customer problems are. When you put all those together, I think you have a very, very good set to set you up for success as, a, as an entrepreneur.
0: While well, we hear success stories with confirmation bias, of course, yet a lot of companies failed. What's your advice for founders when they cope with shutdowns and failures then? Oh, boy. Yes. So first
1: of all, like you, the chances that you fail, as you know, in a startup are significantly higher than the chances that you succeed. There's just unfortunately that the nature of it. I think the most important piece about failure is, for me, at least, is make sure that you capture the learnings from your failure. Don't take it personal. It's just, I see too many founders who are devastated just because their startup fails. In an environment, again, where like, you know, your success success chance is like less than 1%. So it's actually the norm that you fail, thus there's absolutely no shame and no reason to be afraid. I You know, sometimes I wonder, and this is uh, probably a longer discussion to be had, but like sometimes I wonder what you actually learn from failure versus what you learn from success. So there's this notion in Silicon Valley where a lot of people now say, well, you know, like you learn from failure and we've got these conferences around failure, such as FailCon, which I think is good in terms of removing the stigma of failing. I just don't know what you actually learn from failing, because all you learn from failing more or less is one more way how not to do it at least in the business sense. But I think the piece you learn about failure or from failure is about yourself. I think the deepest, the deepest lessons I learned about
0: myself, about what's important and how I operate is when I failed. Do you find that there's a lot of people having this sense of entrepreneurial pond, like sharing too much of their failure stories and actually they are not actually focusing on really learning the lessons from it, but rather just trying to express the story? I think
1: there's a bit of a badge of honor these days. Again, because we're on the positive side, we're removing the stigma from failure, which is great. I think sometimes we go a little bit too far and celebrate failure, like fail- celebrate it in the sense of like it's an actual achievement. Whereas to be frank and honest, I mean, as everybody who has failed knows, it's really painful and it's hard and it's it's you know it breaks your heart and uh, it's a costly experience. So I'm not sure if I want to really <laughs> celebrate my failures, but I agree. Like sometimes, you know, in this in this effort, I believe that some people probably go a little far and hail the failure as an actual success, which is kind of bizarre and interesting. I think this has also something to do with you've heard of the the pivot, which was. Probably being mostly popularized through the startup methodology. So the idea of like you try to find product market fit and then if you don't get it, you like move into a different area and try try again, which in, in theory and in practice actually does make sense. But I've seen a few too many companies which basically are on a an eternal pivot and celebrate the pivot as if it would be success. Which is kind of interesting. So it's
0: over pivoting basically. <laughs> yeah. It's pivot for the sake of the pivot, pivot, I guess. Yeah. Which comes to my point, the Silicon Valley ecosystem is very different from the rest of the world with people paying it forward and helping each other and yet at the same time competitive. And since you live there, can you share your perspectives on the ecosystem and why many out there just unable to replicate it?
1: Yeah, I think so. Silicon Valley is, is a tricky one. First of all, I think one thing people misunderstand is a lot of people think Silicon Valley is a relatively recent phenomena, whereas Silicon Valley really is something which has been brewing, has been developing for decades and decades. I mean, it really started with the, the computer and the semiconductor industry during the times of like the Second World War and then post-Second World War, Cold War. So this has been going on for like, you know, 60 plus years here. So I think that's one important factor to understand. And it's not something which like rises from the ashes overnight. The second is Silicon Valley is also a very international place. So one of the things I really appreciate about this place here is because of the lure of Silicon Valley it attracts incredibly smart people, but literally from all around the world. So you have a really interesting clash of cultures here where people are very, very diverse in their perspectives, simply because of their cultural backgrounds, which helps incredibly with innovation. And then lastly, I think there's an interesting culture here in Silicon Valley, and that's a culture which is I haven't seen in many other ecosystems as developed, which is you mentioned earlier that there's a collaborative yet competitive nature here. What I find is that people are incredibly open about sharing their ideas and supporting each other in making those ideas better. Because what Silicon Valley, I think, has fundamentally understood is that ideas are cheap and plentiful. The execution part is what is really hard. And ideas being shared and being taken apart and being commented on makes ideas better. So people here are very, very willing to share ideas. And that's something which in many other ecosystems, you'll still find a lot of entrepreneurs not willing to share their ideas.
0: So you think that that is probably the ability to openly talk about the idea and get it challenged and try to find ways to make it happen? That is actually the the secret sauce.
1: I think there's a... It's part of it, right? I mean, mm. Silicon Valley is is a much more complex thing than just this. But yes, I think there's a strong part of that in there. Mm.
0: Then that comes to my penultimate question. I mean, there is the Y Combinator and 500 startups in within Silicon Valley, and from what you talk about when we had the earlier conversation on SU Labs, you you distinguish it as focusing on startups that are dealing with exponential technologies to solve global challenges. How do you see yourself within the ecosystem with other accelerators like Y Combinator and 500 Startups? What, how do you view them? How do you, all of you live in within this ecosystem itself? So first of all, I think it's
1: by and at large, it's a, it's a non-competitive environment. I think it's really about when you talk with people like Dave McClure, 500 Startups, who's a friend of mine, talk to Sam Altman over at um, Y Combinator, or you talk to anyone else who runs an accelerator, really, What we all want to do is the same thing, which is make the entrepreneurial ecosystem better and stronger, create better companies tackling interesting problems. From that basis, I think it's really more about where do you specialize? So I think both YCOM as well as 500, as well as us, uh, we all have slightly different angles in the way we approach the world and the way we teach entrepreneurs and the way we select them and what kind of entrepreneurs we look for. So in a lot of ways, I think it's it's a very supportive, non-competitive environment to the extent that we regularly, most accelerators I know, uh, regularly send candidates each other's way. So if I have a candidate who doesn't fit for us, but would be a perfect fit for 500 startups, I'm giving David a call and say, hey, I've got this great, this great company, you should look at them. And vice versa. I guess this goes back to your earlier point about Silicon Valley. It's like, you know, ideas are cheap and plentiful execution is the hard part and it's a competition you know ultimately yes sure there's a tiny bit of competition in there but it's really more about how do we all level up the ecosystem
0: mm. so this, this is very interesting and obviously you have a lot more to do for su labs and also looking after my classmates there who are now having their fun of their time with the launch pad and i obviously would love to come back at some point so pascal help my audience how do they find you so they can find me actually fairly easily on the internet
1: I'm a pretty public person the simplest way to find out everything about me is you go to my personal webpage which is finet.com f i n e t t e .com which has listed all my projects it has my personal email address it has my linkedin my facebook So by all means, for your audience, just be in touch, follow the stuff I do, go to theheretic.org, subscribe to my newsletter. That's a wonderful way to stay abreast with what's in my head, more or less on a daily basis. There's a Facebook group associated with
0: it. Any which way is a great way to be in touch. And of course, your heretic as well. That's correct, yes. <laughs> I'll put a link to that. And you can find me at C W or at Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and also Google Play, but in the U.S. You can also drop in comments to me or recommend anybody for the interview. And I've been actually getting a lot more requests these days and even comments as well. And of course, check out our new feature on Overcast. We actually now basically put chapter marks on the podcast so you can actually click on any of the sections that you want to listen to as well. So once again, Pascal, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This was super fun.